Over the past couple of years, as well as working on eccentricity, I've also been working on the Manchester Voices Research Project at Manchester Metropolitan University with Rob Drummond, Holly Dan and Erin Carey. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we did some analysis using oral history recordings from the 1980s and wrote an academic journal article about our findings. This episode is a companion piece to that article and we hope we've written it in a way that's accessible to people who aren't professional linguists so that you don't need a linguistics degree to understand the main things we found out. If you are a professional linguist or a student and you want to see the full article, statistics and all, you'll find the link in the episode description. Welcome to Accentricity, a podcast about the eccentricities of language and identity. When I went in on my way home from the cricket club, mm-hmm. and Arthur Ratcliffe of Greenfield was the second, they made him the secretary. This is Harry. Uh, but they made him the secretary, how long is it since? A good many years since. So I learned when I got in that they'd This interview was recorded in 1989 as part of an oral history project exploring life in Greater Manchester at the turn of the century. In this recording, Harry is 101 years old. He was born in 1888 in the late Victorian era. When we hear Harry's voice, we're hearing pretty far into the past. Well, I call on my way home from the cricket club and I learned of this society, I said, why not call it the Fellowship? So they thought that was the We're able to listen to Harry now, thanks to a project called Unlocking Our Sound Heritage. Uh, my name is Dave Govier. I'm the project manager for the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project at the Manchester Hub, in, which is the Northwest Hub um, for the Northwest region. So we're based at Manchester Central Library, um, and we started in 2019. It's a project um, to digitise sound archives that uh, the British Library has identified as being out there and of uh, need of digitisation. Although these tapes are sitting out there and they will be in decent nick in 20, 40 years time, um, we, we're not going to have the, the playback equipment to get a signal off of them. Um, and on these tapes are a variety of different things. Um, most of them, probably 70, 80% are oral history. So that's somebody asking um, uh, generally an older person about their life story. So it could be quite a focused project. It could just be about their work or their, their social life at a particular place. But more likely, it'll take the whole life story. So generally speaking, folks start off asking about grandparents, parents, the house where you grew up, your education, your work, your own family. Um, and any reflections that you have on your life. So that, that could take, you know, an hour, um, but it could also take 24 hours. Um, uh, I've seen interviews even longer than that, where people go back for more sessions. Generally speaking, we do try and do oral history in people's houses where they feel most comfortable. And it's really exciting because You've got half an idea of what might be on the tapes, what's written on them, or any documentation they might be kicked about. But often there's surprising stuff that doesn't really that, that can't be boiled down into a piece of paper. And and ultimately that's often the voice 
and the emotional response that we have to the voice. Uh, so that's what I find thrilling about, about listening to these tapes. Often for the first time, it's often the first time they've been played in decades, you know. I, I think he'd left. He certainly wasn't in when I came down from the cricket club. But it's so long since, and my memory I find now is it's going all to pot. We chose to digitise the Alec Greenalch oral history project first. I didn't expect it to be so, um, for the interviews to be so uh, deep, I suppose. Um, Alec, who did the interviews, I think he did them in his retirement. He was a print and later radio journalist. He he goes into immense detail in the interviews about people's um, early life. I can imagine, I like to imagine Alec. I've seen a picture of him on the internet with a big, big bushy beard. And uh, you hear him on the recordings and he's very gruff. Just, could you just explain to me what you mean by ceramic type table? Yeah. I've probably got the wrong end, the wrong end of the stick, really. Do you mean formica? Is it like, like formica, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I just love the detail that he goes into. He doesn't let folk away with sort of a sentence, reply. He says, oh, but and what was behind the kitchen? You know, and what was next? What was the next room in your house? Now, I want to go back to when you were a toddler. How would you get in to your house? Actually get in. Uh, we won't go through the main front door. Why not? Were you barred we... from doing that? No, not at all. What it was, um, it, we had our own private entrance, if you like. Now, if we didn't want to be mired by customers as you walk in, hello, Chris, how are you doing? Are you all right? And no, I'm talking when you're a toddler. Well, in the same as apply, yes. Yeah. Yeah, to apply to my mother, really, you know. Hmm. Uh, we'd go in through the side door. And that would lead into what? A vestibule. Mm-hmm. Was there any floor covering in there or anything like that? Floor covering? I think there may have been a carpet. And this is a traditional oral history uh, technique that, that people try to, um, to use. I don't think, I've never heard it used in quite as, as tenacious a way <laughs> before. Because as I understand it, you're supposed to ask about people's early life and their their house where they grew up because it puts them in mind of being a, a small child and it might allow you access to, to details about their parents and grandparents that you might not otherwise have unless you've done that kind of placing of them, of really getting their their head into what it was like to be a toddler and their earliest memories in that house. You might not actually be interested in the house layout. Um, but it, it serves a useful purpose. Anyway, Alex, Alec was interested in what was in each of these houses. Anything on the walls in the vestibule? On the walls? I think there may have been uh, one or two brass plates, you know, the ones that you have with ships on and things like that. Mm-hmm. So you've got hours and hours of descriptions of, um, of these people's childhood in Saddleworth and the... Whit Friday band practices and uh, brass band competitions. Um, what what happened at Christmas time? You know all the all the important celebrations. So yeah, it's it's a fascinating little world um, in those tapes. 
We got in touch with Dave because we wanted to learn about how people from the Greater Manchester area sounded in the past, and he gave us Alec Greenelch's collection of oral history interviews. These interviews are exciting to us for two reasons. One is what they're able to tell us about day-to-day life at the start of the 20th century, and the other is what their voices are able to tell us, their accents and dialects. Recorded in the 1980s and featuring speakers who were mostly born around the beginning of the 20th century, they give us a window into the past through what they say, but also how they say it. For linguists like us, that can give us a unique insight into how language changes over time. Have you ever noticed that the way you speak is different from the way your parents and grandparents speak or the way your children speak? That's because of a fundamental fact about language. It never stops changing. This is something that people often get weirdly upset about, and you'll often hear people complain that the English language is falling into disrepair because young people refuse to speak it properly. But as linguists, we don't really have a lot of time for those complaints because we're too busy being in love with language change and obsessively studying it to try and understand the forces that drive it. That's what we've been doing over the past year with this collection of oral history recordings. We're interested in how exactly the speech of Alex's interviewees is different from people born a hundred years later than them. The majority of these interviewees are from a place called Saddleworth, on the outskirts of the borough of Oldham. As part of the Manchester Voices project, we went to Saddleworth in our accent van, a mobile recording studio that we've been travelling around in for the past few months. We've taken it on a tour around Greater Manchester, visiting places all across the region, We park up the van at community events, outside libraries, on the high street, at schools, in parks, and we invite people to climb aboard and be interviewed by our talking computer. It asks them questions about their relationship with the place they live in and the accents and dialects attached to that place. Here are some of the things people said about Saddleworth. Um, Saddleworth's a collection of villages. I think it's probably about 10 villages or so in Saddleworth. Uh, old old mill, mill sort of uh, transport towns really, yeah. Uh, it's lovely as a place to live. Um, it is semi-rural now. I mean, at one time it was quite rural and people used to say, oh, you don't live up there, do you? But now everyone wants to live here. When my mum was a doctor, like 30 years ago, um, she met patients who literally had been to Oldham twice. It's six miles away or they'd been over to the other side of the hill once in their life. People really, really didn't go anywhere, so the accent stayed very, very localised. Um, well, Saddleworth is now part of Oldham Metropolitan, Metropolitan Borough Council, which is obviously part of Greater Manchester. Up until 1974, Saddleworth was part of the West Riding of Yorkshire, and every year we have our annual Yorkshire Day, and there's a statue just around the corner that gets a garland of white roses. And the older Saddleworthians are very proud of their Yorkshire roots. Um, God forbid you say they're from Lancashire or even Oldham. Listening to these modern Saddleworth voices, one big difference jumped out at us between the way they sound and the way Alex oral history interviewees sound. And uh, his ashes were taken up there. And uh, it was his son-in-law who said I'm wanting me to scatter his ashes, you see, which I did. And I recited one of his poems. I think I recited Saddleworth Church whilst I'm scattering his ashes. 
The speakers from the oral history recordings often say words like church with an er sound in them, and that's something none of the contemporary Saddleworth residents we spoke to did. Do you pronounce the R's in farmer? Farmer. Farmer. No, I don't think so. Farmer. Farmer. So have you heard anyone round here saying it like me, like farmer with the R's in? Um, off the top of my head, possibly not. How would you say the word farmer? Fireman. Far- farmer. For, sorry. So someone who, who runs a farm. Oh, a farmer, yes. So you wouldn't say farmer with the R's in? A farmer. <laughs> this linguistic feature is called roticity. Some speakers are rhotic, meaning that they have an R sound after vowels and before consonants in words like farmer and church. I'm a rhotic speaker, as are the majority of Scottish people. The majority of English people today are non-rhotic and say farmer and church. Roll the clock back a few hundred years though, and most English speakers would have said it like me, no matter where they were from or how posh they were. In fact, it was so normal and accepted that it's reflected in our spelling system, which is full of R's that only some people pronounce. Across England, roticity has been slowly making its exit for centuries, with non-roticity becoming the standard pronunciation. But in some accents, the R's have stuck around for longer. You can still hear some roticity in the southwest of England, and also in parts of the northwest like Blackburn and areas around it. And, according to our oral history recordings, in the early 20th century, you could still hear it in the borough of Oldham, although it had probably already gone from the surrounding areas. Nowadays, you can still hear it from some speakers, but it seems to be mostly gone in that area. So we had this opportunity to look into the linguistic past, and we started to get really interested in roticity. Where did it go, and why did it go? All of Alex's oral history interviewees have this linguistic feature, but they don't use it all of the time. Sometimes they say farmer or church, and sometimes they say it more like farmer or church. It's almost like they're making a subconscious choice between the older pronunciation, with roticity, and the more modern pronunciation, without. We decided to zoom in and look at the details of this choice across all of the speakers in the collection from the borough of Oldham. Here's Holly, the other research associate on the Manchester Voices team, to explain what we did. So the first thing we did when we were looking at these recordings is we found all the examples of where people um, could potentially say an R, so words like farm, uh, something like father, so like the uh, ER at the end of the words, um, all those kind of words that have an R in that could or could not be pronounced. So we found all the examples of them and then we had to figure out a way to um, measure whether or not R was being pronounced. So the first thing we did is um, me and Sadie, for the most part, listened through to them and wrote down whether or not we thought R was there or not, whether they said farm or farm. Um, and essentially what we found is that we didn't agree with each other on that. Um, and it's actually really subjective as to whether someone has pronounced an R or not. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One might be that Sadie is rhotic and I'm not. So we have different experiences of people pronouncing R's. So we might hear things really differently. Um, and the other reason was that the speakers in our data set um, often said something kind of somewhere in between 
fully rhotic and fully non-rhotic, like um, not fully farm and not fully farm, but something sort of intermediate. Um, so it was those intermediate ones that we we didn't agree with each other about what was happening. And that was probably because kind of both was happening and it was somewhere in the middle. Um, so what we ended up doing was taking a more uh, kind of scientific acoustic approach to it, um, which I won't go into loads of detail on because it's not very interesting if you're not a linguist. Um, but essentially, we can take an acoustic measurement um, that tells you how much um, constriction there is in the vocal tract. So if there's loads of constriction, it probably sounds more like farm. If there's not very much, it probably sounds more like farm, um, which you can probably feel what your tongue's doing if you say those words. Um, so we can take a uh, we can take a numerical measurement of how much R there is or isn't essentially, um, and that does two things. It's first of all a lot more objective. Um, there's no kind of subjective experience going into how we're measuring it, um, and also it captures all the variation in R's that we have in our data set. So from the all the way from farm all the way to farm and everything in between is captured by like a number um, and then we can do um, more nuanced analysis on that. We wanted to know all about the loss of roticity in this area but we also really wanted to know about what roticity meant to these speakers at this time. With accent features like roticity and maybe especially when changes are happening with these accent features sometimes they can start to mean something. When we hear a speaker with roticity we might think that person's probably working class, or that person sounds like a farmer, or that person's taking the piss, or even that person's annoyed at me. These meanings can be varied, they can change over time, and they can be different from place to place. For example, in America, the poshest accents have roticity, and some more working class accents don't, which is kind of the opposite of in England. And if you were to go back in time to when everyone in England was rhotic, it wouldn't have the same meaning as it does now. So then, what about Alex's oral history interviewees? They lived at a time when rhoticity had gone from most of England, and people in their community were moving away from rhoticity really fast. We know this because the older speakers whose speech we looked at were more rhotic than the younger speakers. Sitting in the middle of this change, what did rhoticity mean to them? When they heard someone speaking with roticity, what did they hear? When they spoke with roticity, what did the people around them hear? Of course, this isn't an easy thing to investigate. We don't have contact with these speakers, and many of them passed away long ago. All we have to go on are the interviews themselves. But between us, me, Rob, Holly and Erin, who were working on this project together, had an idea. Here's Holly again to explain it. Once we had our measurements of roticity, our, our numerical measurements of how rhotic or non-rhotic each um, word was, we then wanted to track um, how each speaker shifted in their use of roticity throughout an interview. So essentially, um, all of the speakers used different levels of roticity, so more or less R, um, at, at different points in the interview. So depending on what they were talking about, depending on how they felt about what they were talking about, and we wanted to try and find patterns in this. Um, so to do this, we essentially made a series of graphs, um, one for each of the speakers and one for each of the interviews. So if you imagine a graph with time along the bottom axis, along the x-axis, um, so that's like the interview going on 
um, and uh, the measurement of roticity along the the upright axis, the y-axis. We can then track how they shifted in their use of R throughout the course of the interview. So we could see these kind of peaks and troughs in how they were using R, um, depending on what they were talking about, and what was going on in the interview. So we could then look um, for each of these speakers, we could um, look at each of the points where they were particularly strongly rhotic and each of the points where they were particularly non-rhotic, so using less R, um, and then look into the interview and read the transcripts and listen to it and think about what they were talking about, how they felt about what they were talking about, and try and find um, patterns across individual speakers, but also between all the different speakers, whether when they're talking about a certain topic, they are more or less likely to be rhotic. So we found a pattern, but not necessarily the pattern we expected to find. We thought that we might see these speakers move towards non-roticity when they're talking about formal situations and things like their time at school. We know that generally people are discouraged from using local non-standard linguistic features in formal situations like the classroom, so it stands to reason that they might also do this when they're talking about these situations to an interviewer. Most of these interviews include some talk about school, because Alec the interviewer was interested in hearing about their school days. So we thought we might see a nice neat pattern there, where when they start talking about school, they get less rhotic. But the pattern wasn't nice and neat like that. Actually, the women whose speech we were looking at did seem to become less rhotic when talking about school, particularly when they were talking positively about school or talking about their academic achievements. But the men seemed to be doing the opposite, often becoming more rhotic when talking about how much they respected their teachers. In this clip, one of the speakers, Charles, becomes really rhotic when talking about how discipline was much stricter in his days than it is today. Notice that he talks with approval about this strict discipline. What was discipline like in the school? Very strict. But you accepted it. But what do you call strict in that sense? I mean... Well, if they got you smoking, you've got six of the best. But we're talking about you being five or six or seven or eight now. Yeah. No, 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 no. Going back to that age, well, if you were late for school, you had to go to the headmaster and tell him why, and that was frightening enough. He was massive to a kid, you know. And he'd look at you and stare at you. Why were you late? Well, uh, that, I don't want no excuses. Why were you late? You didn't get up in time. Now, I was, I'd been up a day, you know, earlier than that sometime. But, oh. I, and, and then, would that seem to be the interview with the headmaster? Would that be the punishment sufficient in itself? It or, depends. Or? If you said you were very sorry and it didn't happen too often, that was enough. But if it was perhaps twice a week, then you used to get your hands smacked. You smacked. know, back of your hand. Oh, and, and it did yeah. hurt, you know. You remember it. it. didn't do you any harm, but you remembered it. Um, if you broke a window, then you got the cane, even the eight-year-old. But not quite as hard as when you were 40. <laughs> but you got the cane. And you accepted it. All this corporal punishment, it isn't the kids who stopped it, it was the parents who stopped it, not the kids. The gender split, where the men and women seemed to show different patterns when talking about education, surprised us. But we also noticed that the men didn't only get more erotic when talking positively about their school days. There seemed to be a wider pattern where they would get more erotic when talking about the good old days in general. 
Sometimes they're talking about how the strict discipline of schools at the turn of the century was better and meant that kids were very well behaved, not like today. Sometimes they're talking about the make-do-and-mend attitude of wartime and how it meant that nothing was wasted, not like today. Sometimes they're talking approvingly about how in their day people were tougher and less emotional and just got on with things, not like today. When their top moves onto that particular track, they tend to get more rhotic. So they'd be more likely to say that things were better in the old days rather than better. We think that for these men, roticity probably already felt quite old-fashioned. And that because of this, they're able to move towards using more roticity when they wanted to align themselves with the older generation and the older ways of life they represented. We're not suggesting that they necessarily knew they were doing this or did it consciously. It was probably on a subconscious level, which kind of makes it even cooler and more interesting, I think. Like the men, the women do get more erotic when they're talking about the good old days. But where they differ is that they don't talk about the good old days nearly as much. And when you listen to the stories they tell about their younger days, that's not really so surprising. Here's one of the other speakers, Lillian, talking about her school days. But um, when we got in seven, standard seven, we had to go on the platform, separated. Now I was in standard X seven, three years. But I couldn't leave till I was 13. And uh, really, the headmaster said, he said, you know, you're wasting your time, really. So he said, will you like to go in the infant room and uh, help there? So he sent me in the infant room. I went to lessons besides, you know, in between, and helped with the teaching of the little ones. How old would you be then? Well, I was 11. When I got 11, I got in X7. And then, no, when I was 13, 12 and 13, I had to go with the little one, help with the little ones. So the schoolmaster said, he said, you know, he said, really, I'm not boasting, don't think I am. But he said, really, this girl ought to be going to something better. He said, she'd make a very good journalist. So, you see, my father was bothered with rheumatism, gout really, a lot. And he used to be, have to be off work. So they couldn't afford to let me go. I had to start working when I was 13. During these speakers' younger years, educational opportunities for working class women were severely limited, more than they were for men. In our oral history interviews, similar stories came up again and again. Stories of clever, educationally successful young women who had to leave school at 12 or 13 or 14 to work in the mills and support their families. In the women's stories, there's often a sense of restriction and resentment running through them. A feeling that they could have been more, that they could have gone on to something better. It's worth remembering that although these women were talking about their childhoods at the turn of the century, the interviews were recorded in the 1980s, when things had changed a lot for women and girls. If these women had been born later, their lives might have been very different, and they would have known that. It stands to reason that for them, the good old days might have less of a rosy, nostalgic glow than they do for the men. The men whose stories we heard were generally less restricted in their life choices and educational opportunities than the women were. 
The women aren't as positive about the good old days as the men are. And they also don't use as much rhoticity as the men. We think that for these speakers, using rhoticity could signal positive attitudes toward the past, and that the women just didn't have such positive attitudes to signal. For them, the old days were more likely to represent restriction, hard work and disappointment. It's perhaps not surprising then, that when we look at their speech statistically, there's a clear gender split with the men using more rhoticity overall and the women less. Sociolinguistic studies like this one often show gender differences in speech. And this study helps to unpick one of the reasons that gender differences might emerge at this particular time and in this particular place. Not only do the women use less rhoticity than the men overall, but they also have particular moments in their interviews when they get dramatically less rhotic. Looking closely at these moments, they tend to be when they're displaying positive attitudes towards modernity and mobility, essentially doing the opposite of what the men are doing when they're talking about the good old days. And this, we think, might help to explain why we have this funny pattern where the men tend to get more rhotic and the women less rhotic when they talk about school. These women were born at the turn of the century. Lillian, who you heard earlier, was born in 1893. She started school less than 20 years after the Education Act of 1880 made primary school education for all genders compulsory. There's a good chance that her mum didn't go to school. For women like Lillian, academic education wasn't part of the older ways of doing things. It was something modern, seen by some as threatening to traditional values and older ways of life. In the clip where Lillian tells us that she could have continued her education and become a journalist, she uses much less rhoticity than she does elsewhere in the interview. In doing so, she's styling herself as a modern woman by early 20th century standards. She never quite got to be that 20th century woman with the journalism career in the big city. She worked in the mill until she got married and then focused on raising her family. But even at the age of 95, when she tells Alec about the women she could have been, her speech shifts towards a more modern pronunciation, maybe closer to the accent that she imagines a female journalist in the big city might have had. The idea that we might be doing subtle identity work like this with our accents is amazing to me. And our analysis could be wrong, of course. One of the really difficult things about using archive recordings in this way is that we can't speak to these people. We can't ask them questions directly or ask them to take part in linguistic experiments or find out more. But I love trying to understand Lillian and Charles and Harry and the other people we listen to, trying to get a grip on how they might have experienced the world. We're able to find patterns in their stories, delve into those patterns in our analysis, and try to get an insight into the inner lives and subconscious minds of these people, many of them now long gone. I feel like I know them really well, even though I don't actually know what they look like. Through these archives, I was able to sit at home during the 2020 COVID-19 lockdown, listening to people tell stories about the Spanish flu epidemic 100 years earlier. I was able to imagine what my life might have been like if I'd had to leave school at 13. I was able to wonder what Lillian might think of my life and my educational opportunities and the world that I live in if she met me now. The project described in this episode is a joint piece of work by me, Holly Dan, Rob Drummond and Erin Carey. 
comes from the Manchester Voices Research Project, hosted at Manchester Metropolitan University and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. You can find a link to our website in the episode description. Massive thanks to Dave Govier and the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage Project, supported by the Heritage Lottery Fund. Links and details are in the episode description. Thanks also to Danielle Turton for advice about our roticity analysis. Thanks to Seb Felt for making the music. <laughs>